Welcome to Created to Reign, a podcast of the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, a ministry dedicated to teaching people how to work together to fulfill the mandate God gave the human race in Genesis 1.28, to multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over it by enhancing its fruitfulness, beauty, and safety, to the glory of God and the benefit of our neighbors. I'm Cal Beisner, president of the Cornwall Alliance, and in this and the next two episodes of Created to Reign, I'm going to look at how some evangelical environmentalists use, misuse, or neglect Scripture. The most important source of understanding evangelicals can bring to environmental issues is the Bible, the Word of God. From it, above all other sources, we learn about creator and creation, about ourselves and our relationship with the rest of creation, about righteousness and sin and judgment and redemption, about the beginning and the end and the purpose of it all. Evangelical environmentalists make much use of Scripture, often in insightful ways. They have written extensively about such major biblical issues as the dominion mandate of Genesis 1, 26-28, Adam's role as cultivator and keeper of the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2, 15, the effect of sin on the earth and man's relationship with other creatures and the ground itself in Genesis 3, God's ultimate ownership of the earth— Psalm 24.1, over which he has given man stewardship in Psalm 115, verse 16, the wonder we should feel toward creation, for instance in Job 38-41 through 41, or Psalm 104, and the inclusion of creation in Christ's redemption in Romans 8.19-23 and Colossians 1.15-18.Evangelical environmentalists are to be commended particularly for their effective refutation, by the use of Scripture, of various charges by non-Christian environmentalists that Christianity is to blame for environmental degradation. Some secular and New Age environmentalists, for instance, charge that Christianity's anthropocentrism leads to neglect of other forms of life. Evangelicals rightly respond, first, that Christianity is not anthropocentric, but theocentric. Second, that God holds man accountable for his stewardship of creation. Third, that the Bible teaches us to appreciate creation and praise God for it. And fourth, that the earth was not made just for man, but for the pleasure and glory of God. Other non-Christian environmentalists charge that Christianity's affirmation of human dominion over the earth justifies misuse of ecosystems. Evangelicals reply that a proper understanding of dominion involves careful stewardship of the earth, not its degradation, and that cultures shaped largely by other religions have done at least as much damage to the environment as has Western culture. As good as much of the use of Scripture is in evangelical environmental writings, however, it can be improved. In this and the next episode of Created to Reign, I'll look critically at how some evangelical environmentalists use particular passages of Scripture to bolster some of their ideas, but misunderstand or misapply the passages. In a third episode, I'll look at some relevant passages that seem to be overlooked in the writings of evangelical environmentalists. My aim is not to quibble over small details, but to discuss how our handling, mishandling, or neglect of a few specific passages of Scripture 
can affect our understanding of certain broad principles related to environmental stewardship and ethics. Evangelical environmentalists sometimes claim support for their ideas from scripture passages that don't mean what they think. Evangelical writings on the environment frequently cite Isaiah 5.8, which says, Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land, as a warning against dense population centers, that is, urbanization, or even against overpopulation on a global scale. For example, after citing it in his book Ecotheology, the Judeo-Christian Tradition and the Politics of Ecological Decision-Making, Oren Gelderlos wrote, quote, Placing house next to house reduces biodiversity and leaves humankind disconnected from the created world and without the companionship of the other species of creation, unquote. In the book Earthkeeping in the Nineties, Lauren Wilkinson used it as an epigram to a chapter titled The Human Deluge, which argues that human population growth threatens to crowd the planet, deplete resources, and drive many species extinct. In the book Earthwise, A Biblical Response to Environmental Issues, Calvin DeWitt used it to condemn, quote, deforestation and habitat destruction, unquote, and the conversion of agricultural land to residential and other uses. Before discussing whether the verse properly applies to such questions, two other things deserve note. First, it is unlikely that, as Gelderlos put it, quote, placing house next to house reduces biodiversity, unquote. On the contrary, by living close together, people reduce their overall intrusion on natural habitats, thus minimizing whatever negative effect they might have on biodiversity. Second, whether these writers have accurately described the empirical situation, and whether the empirical situation even as described is actually a problem, are distinct questions from whether they have rightly used this verse. Even if they have used the verse properly, it might not lend added biblical authority to their empirical claims. But does the verse itself even properly apply to such concerns? Certainly not directly. Gelderlos, for instance, thinks it condemns building many houses close together. But the verse says the result of joining, quote, house to house and field to field, unquote, is that, quote, no space is left and you live alone in the land, unquote. What does this mean? That people, lots of them, live densely packed together without other species? That does not seem to have been the concern God intended to express through Isaiah. As an aside, uh, you might note that certainly nothing in the context hints of a concern for other species. Israelites are the focus. The judgment pronounced in this verse is rooted in the Jubilee Land Tenure Law of Leviticus 25, which we'll discuss in more depth in the third episode of this series. That law forbade the permanent sale of agricultural land outside a family line, requiring instead that it be sold only for as many years as remained until the Jubilee, which came every 50th year, and for a price equal to the combined value of the intervening annual crops, after which it must re be returned, its sale price having been repaid by the crops, to the original family of ownership. If obeyed, this law would have ensured that every family retained over long periods of time, albeit perhaps with temporary interruptions, possession of productive land. 
it also would have prevented the amassing of large agricultural holdings in a few hands, while many Israelites were left without land on which to earn a living. Now, here Isaiah writes of Israel's disobedience to this law and of its consequences. Uh, Micah, a contemporary of Isaiah, mentions the same oppression by some rich Israelites, with more obvious reliance on the Jubilee law. Says Micah, quote, They covet fields and seize them, and houses, and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a fellow man of his inheritance. That's Micah 2 2. By till no space is left, then, Isaiah means no space for brother Israelites, particularly the poor who have been dispossessed of their landed inheritance, because the oppressors have taken all their lands from them, contrary to the Jubilee law. Hence, the oppressors live alone in the land, not densely, but sparsely populating it, because they have driven the poor from their lands. The difficulty is harmonizing join house to house, which Gelderlos and some other environmentalist authors try to take to imply lots of dwellings close together, with you live alone in the land. The solution seems to be that the highly elastic word bayith, translated house, in this instance probably denotes not a physical dwelling, but a place or property associated with a family. Perhaps the best translation for us moderns would be join estate to estate, or, as suggested by a comment by George Buchanan Gray in a critical and exegetical commentary on the book of Isaiah, homestead to homestead. Nothing in this passage condemns building dwellings on agricultural land. The prophetic concern is not about deforestation or conversion of farmland to residential land, or having lots of houses close together, but about some people unlawfully defrauding others of their property, whether dwelling or field, whether urban or rural. To apply it to questions of land conversion is to import biblical moral authority illegitimately. Now, another passage often misused is Jeremiah 2, 7 through 8. Wesley Granberg Michelson, in his book Ecology and Life, describes a conversation with a geography teacher during an airline flight. Looking down at the scars of clear-cut areas, the teacher said, The scripture verse I'm reminded of is from Jeremiah. It says, I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things, but when you came in, you defiled my land. That's exactly what we've done. Later, Granberg Michelson wrote, I looked up the reference and found it in Jeremiah 2, 7-8. through 8. This is one of numerous biblical references portraying the unfaithfulness and sins of humanity expressed in the destruction of the environment. Unquote. Now, wanton destruction of the environment is undoubtedly a form of unfaithfulness to the stewardship God has given to man, and thus is sin. And Jeremiah 2, 7-8 does indeed attribute environmental destruction to the sins of Israel. But there's an important difference between what Jeremiah says and what Granberg Michelson says. Granberg Michelson says that this and other biblical passages portray human unfaithfulness and sin as, quote, expressed in the destruction of the environment, unquote. If this were so, what sorts of acts might we expect Jeremiah to list as sins that, quote, defiled God's land, unquote? 
wasteful killing of forests and animals, careless farming that caused rapid soil erosion, failure to give the land its Sabbaths by leaving it fallow every Sabbath year, and so on. But what sorts of acts does Jeremiah actually name? Quote, They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, Where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and reach produce. But you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priests did not ask, Where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. That's Jeremiah 2, 5 through 8, and verse 13. What sins defiled the land? Not poor environmental practices, but idolatry and infidelity to the covenant. Jeremiah explains that Israel's theological infidelity has brought God's judgment, foreign invasion and drought, leading ultimately to the once fruitful lands becoming, quote, formless and empty, unquote, with no people or even birds, a desert with all its towns in ruins. That's Jeremiah 4, 23 and 25 through 26. This leads to an important observation about the interrelationship of God, man, and the environment. God is personally involved, acting in covenantal judgment on the environment in response to man's covenantal loyalty or treason, just as he cursed the earth in response to Adam's sin in the garden. Notice that when Israel had been faithful, God had blessed it by bringing it out of foreign oppression in Egypt, leading it safely through a barren wilderness and settling it in, quote, a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, unquote. That's uh, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. But now that Israel has turned in betrayal from the covenant, God is judging it by putting it under foreign oppression again and making its land infertile. Certainly, sound agricultural practices are important to the land's fertility, but they will be of no avail when a nation, by turning from God to idols and spurning his law, brings God's judgment on itself. If we are to preserve or restore the earth from environmental degradation, then the most important message evangelicals can communicate will focus not on carbon dioxide or chlorofluorocarbon emissions— not on soil erosion or deforestation, not on species extinction or toxic wastes, but on fidelity to God and his law. Our most significant message is not pragmatic, use contour plowing, reduced carbon dioxide emissions, reduced dependence on fossil fuels, but ethical, worship and obey the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, pragmatic instructions are useful, but they are secondary. Ethics is primary. Ethics defined by the revealed law of God in Scripture, not by current best wisdom about pollution control and ecology. Those who live in faithful obedience to the God of the covenant will experience his blessing, even on the environment, as God promised in Deuteronomy 7, 12 through 15. But those who live in unbelieving sin will experience God's curse, even on the environment, 
as he warned in Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 24. God himself blesses or curses the environment in response to man's faithful obedience or faithless rebellion, according to Leviticus 26, 1 through 14 and Deuteronomy 8. This too is a pregnant observation for environmentalism. Since God willingly causes devastation to the natural environment in response to man's sin, for example in the worldwide flood of Noah's day, God's highest priority must not be environmental preservation but the restoration and maintenance of his covenantal relationship with wayward sinners. Also, in God's grand purposes, human beings take precedence over the natural world, and environmental degradation must sometimes be attributed to God's direct judgment, in response, indeed, to human sin, but with God, not man, as the efficient cause. By all means, let us teach man's accountability to God for his dominion over the earth. Let us develop and teach sound principles of resource use and conservation, of pollution abatement, of recycling. Let us recognize that Scripture reveals environmental consequences of sin. But first and foremost, let us call mankind to repentance for sin and faithful obedience to God according to his laws, And let us be careful not to read environmental degradation into passages of Scripture that talk instead of idolatry, spiritual adultery, and other such sins that may be committed just as much by someone who uses best available practices in soil conservation or waste disposal and recycling as by someone who ignores or flouts such wise methods. Another implication of this principle is that where we see great and ongoing environmental devastation— we should at least ask, can this devastation be God's response to unfaithfulness and sin in this society? In what ways are these manifested? And where we see great and ongoing environmental improvement, we should at least ask, can this improvement be God's response to faithfulness and obedience in this society? In what ways are these manifested? It will be difficult, sometimes impossible, to pinpoint the connections between disobedience and devastation or between obedience and improvement. But our faith in Scripture requires us to try, and our own faithful application of this principle requires us to stand against the political correctness of our times in two ways. First, we will reject the cultural relativism that refuses to make moral distinctions between cultures. Second, we will reject the automatic preference for non-Western, especially non-American, cultures that dominates much of the secular and New Age streams of environmentalism. Instead, we will judge cultures impartially by the standards of God's law, and we will recognize that despite its weaknesses, despite the fact that it has a long, long way to go before it can be called truly Christian, Western culture has been more thoroughly influenced by biblical worldview, theology, and ethics than any other culture, and that the consequent progress it has made in guaranteeing basic human rights, enhancing liberty and the rule of law, improving health and longevity, reducing hunger and disease, and increasing material wealth while diminishing pollution, all of these documented in the massive book The State of Humanity, edited by the late Julian L. Simon, and of which I was the managing editor, bears testimony to that influence. Calvin DeWitt, in Seven Degradations of Creation, uh, an essay published in his edited book, The Environment and the Christian, and widely reprinted, cites Jeremiah 2.7 as applying to global toxification, quote-unquote, 
by the discharge of chemicals into air, water, and soil. Like Granberg Michelson, he misidentifies the human action and overlooks the divine judgment as efficient cause of the environmental damage described in Jeremiah's prophecy. Similarly, in Earthwise, after discussing global warming caused by the release of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, and ozone depletion allegedly caused by CFC emissions, processes he says are causing alteration of planetary energy exchange, DeWitt cites Deuteronomy 32.6. Is this the way you repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? But the sin Moses had in mind there was not chemical air pollution or any other action evangelical and other environmentalists name as threatening the environment, but, just as we saw in Jeremiah, idolatry, spiritual infidelity. And here again God's judgment is expressed in his bringing devastation on the environment, as Deuteronomy 32, 15-24 makes clear. My point is not to excuse clear-cutting or greenhouse gas and CFC emissions, the wisdom or folly, and the safe levels of which are to be determined by scientific investigation, not by appeal to Scripture, and will vary from place to place and in relation to other changing conditions, but to point out that these verses do not properly apply to the empirical issues Granberg, Michelson, and DeWitt have in mind. Citing them as if they did not only obscures the important moral and theological truths they properly convey, but also illegitimately imports their moral authority to what are debatable scientific questions. In the next episode of Created to Reign, we'll look at two additional examples of the misuse of Scripture by leading environmentalists, including the very important Jubilee Law. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, recommend it to friends, and share it on your social media. Please also pray for the Cornwall Alliance and consider supporting us financially. Learn more from the Cornwall Alliance at our website, cornwallalliance.org, from the videos on our YouTube channel and on our Facebook page. Until next time, keep striving to fulfill the Dominion mandate by enhancing the Earth's fruitfulness, beauty, and safety. To the glory of God and the benefit of your neighbors, and may God richly bless you.